Support for today's episode comes from Hexclad. I hosted the Jane's Beard Awards um, twice, actually. I'm, I'm not bragging. I'm just telling the truth. And Hexclad is the official cookware of the James Beard Foundation. So I was so happy to hear there are Dinners on Me sponsors. Hexclad has revolutionized the cookware industry with an all-in-one hybrid pan that gives you the convenience and cleanup of nonstick, the versatility of your grandma's cast iron, and the durability to last a lifetime. Whether you want to make that perfect steak dinner on date night or ditch that greasy pan from your college apartment, Hexclad has you covered. James Beard celebrates incredible chefs annually with their prestigious awards that I have had the privilege of handing out. Again, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying. And it's no surprise that Hexclad is their official cookware. They are a chef's dream and I, I just, I love cooking with them. I feel so professional when I do. Hexclad also has a lifetime warranty. These are literally the last set of pots and pans you will ever have to buy. Trust me when I say your partner, your family, and all your dinner guests will thank you. So, Chef, now is the time to upgrade that kitchen. For a limited time only, our listeners get 10% off their order with an exclusive link. Just head to hexclad.com slash JTF. Support our show and check them out at hexclad.com forward slash JTF. Bon appetit. Let's eat with Hexclad's revolutionary cookware. It sounds a little weird, but being the host of a show like Dinners on Me, where you eat out all the time, can be a little stressful on the body. I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling a little sluggish and I wanted to make sure I was getting the daily nutrients that I needed. Since drinking AG1 daily, I feel a real difference with my energy levels and my ability to focus. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. I recommend AG1 to all my family and friends because it's formulated based on the latest science and maintains high-quality standards. Even Justin has started drinking AG1, and he tells me that it really helps his energy level, helps with stress, helps his gut health, all that good stuff. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner to the Dinners on Me podcast. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packets with your first purchase at drinkag1.com slash dinner. That's drinkag1.com slash dinner. Check it out. Hi, it's Jesse. Today on the show, you know him from Breaking Bad, Malcolm in the Middle, and Asteroid City. It's Brian Cranston. I think being fired and being dumped are two passages in people's lives. That gives you balance, actually. This is Dinners on Me, and I'm your host, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Man, oh man, I am such a huge fan of today's guest. The career that Brian Cranston has had and is continuing to have is one I could not be more inspired by. The roles he has played, I mean, they range so far and wide from the iconic Walter White in Breaking Bad to Daffy Dad, Hal Wilkerson and Malcolm in the Middle. He's played a powerful president. He's played a tormented judge. He's won multiple Emmy Awards and Tony Awards, and he's even been nominated for an Oscar. It's no wonder I was a bit intimidated by Brian when he directed a few episodes of Modern Family. Oh, yeah, he's also a great director, too. Seriously, what can this guy not do? I was so excited to reunite with Brian Cranston for a meal and catch up. Bing bong, bing bong, bong bong, bong bong, bong bing bong, bong bong. How are you? Hi, bud. How you doing? I'm good. I decided to bring Brian to Great White, an Australian-style all-day cafe in West Hollywood, the owners are two very attractive Australian men, uh, both named Sam, who decided Los Angeles was missing out on the all-day cafe culture that they grew up with in Australia. They have a couple of locations in LA, but I'm especially fond of the Melrose location. You feel transported to someplace else. The oversized rattan lighting and the dining room open to the patio makes you feel like you're in someplace exotic, like Tulum. 
It's also hard not to salivate over the food, especially the pizzas that you see and smell as they're being pulled from the pizza oven on the other side of the bar. Okay, I need to eat. Let's get to the conversation. This is a great concept. It's been really fun, yeah, it's been great. We just dropped Ed O'Neill's episode uh, yesterday and he revealed that he, he left an opportunity to join the mob to become an actor, which I think everyone finds very fascinating. And I, I followed up with that today. I was like, you know, people are really impressed with this story of you almost joining the mob. He's like, you know, I, I was in Youngstown. It's like, you can't avoid these things. You're gonna see these types of guys around. Like, it's just the way it is. I know. I His know. street cred just went right up. way up. Way up. <laughs> Speaking of street cred, hey, yeah. I was almost uh, I was wanted for murder once. Personally, yeah, take that, Ed O'Neill. Wait, I think I remember this guy. I read your book. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A life in pieces. A life in acts. A life in parts. A life in parts. Yeah. A life in parts, which is uh, fantastic. I listened to you read it to me. Uh, or it could be a life in pieces. It could. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll wait and see how everything turns out. It might be a life in pieces yeah. by the end. By the yeah. end of it. But remind me of the story about when, when you got accused. I was. Um, my brother and I were traveling the country on motorcycles. Right. In the mid 70s. Yes. And we got to Florida and we were broke. So we had to stop for a while and get jobs because we, we had to make some money. And we got jobs as waiters in this uh, restaurant called the Hawaiian Inn in Daytona Beach, Florida. Yeah. At the Hawaiian Inn, there was this cantankerous uh, chef named Peter Wong who just hated everyone. There was just no way on earth you were ever going to get on his good side. But he liked the ladies. And so all the men knew, oh, if we had any problem in the kitchen, we had to send them in. Right. Peter, will you please change this? Oh, okay. But if we went in, yeah. there's something wrong with this meal. Ah, nah, he'd scream at you. And, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, tell you, he was, he was awful. And so... During the meetings, you know, did you ever work in a restaurant? I did. did. I worked at Sadie's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, uh, which I want, I want to ask yes. if you've been there. But yeah. Yes. Hi. Hi. Yes. Yes. Server stories. Well, in, yeah. Right on yeah, cue. Yes. Server stories. <laughs> My name's Briars. I'll be taking. What's your name is? Briars. Briars. Nice Briars. Yeah. Briars. Yeah. It's an old family name. Great-great-grandmother, great, great, great Oh, I've met so really? many Briars in my life. Have like, you? Like, oh, the no, you dime haven't. a dozen. <laughs> I definitely know I want the shaken ice latte uh, because my producer Joanna got it and says it's fantastic. A shaken ice latte. That's right. It's a little chilly today, though. It is, but I'm under this heat lamp. You are, yeah. 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 Merticerie. Um, I definitely know I want that. And I might do a green goddess juice, too. Okay. Um, did you have a chance to look at the menu yet, Brian? I am looking now. I think I'm gonna move to the lunch portion of the day and do a poke bowl. Okay. And I think I think I'll be good with that. Um, I'll start with a um, a chai latte, and um, I do want something. Oh, fish tacos. How are they? They're good. They're lighter. They're lettuce wrapped. Lettuce wrapped. Mm. Mm. But if yeah. you like fish, I do. salmon, the coconut curry is like the best thing on the menu. Sold. Okay, great. Coconut curry salmon. And I think you have some order envy. I do. Well, I'm no, this sensing is okay. order envy. You did sense, you sense correctly. You're very intuitive. <laughs> okay, so I did see you can make this dirty. So I think I am also going to do a chai latte. I'm going to make it dirty. Instead hot. of the shaken ice, hot. Yeah. Chai, dirty, hot. Chai, not dirty. Thank so you, Briars. You're welcome. Thank really you, Brian. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so the, the kitchen. So, yeah. So, you know that when you, when you work as a waiter, um, you have the meetings beforehand. They say, we're, we we really got to push the steaks. Yeah. And uh, we, we're, we only have three lobster tails left, so we can't, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, you, we have all these conversations. And, uh, you know, before the meeting would start, we'd have a little something to eat, and, and we'd all discuss how rotten and mean Peter Wong is. Uh -huh. and, and we'd all discuss, if one were to do away with Peter Wong, how would, you, how would one do it, you know? And some say, well, I'd, I think I would use his own walk on him, you know? Oh. <laughs> you know, I'd put him in the meat grinder. Right, I would right. Do, we would... We would yeah. Laugh about all these. All these. You're in a kitchen. Ways. There's a million ways to kill someone a in a kitchen. Million ways. Yeah. Butcher knives. Yeah. You know. 
And so uh, my brother and I finished the, the winter season as it is in Florida, and it's time for us to take off again, and we wanted to go up north all the way to Maine and on our motorcycles. And so uh, we say goodbye to everybody, and we head out. Yeah. Well, little did we know that right at the time we said goodbye and left the job, Peter Wong went missing. He was not found for a week, week and a half, two weeks. Wow. And what had happened is that he was a guy, you know, an insecure guy. And what do we insecure guys do? They like to feel big. So he always carried a wad of cash. <laughs> and he'd go to the dog track. Hey, let me bet on this and bet on this. And yeah. someone went, aha. Uh -huh. And uh, a, a young lady in a honey trap you know, just mm -hmm. said, you're cute. And she said, come on with me. And he said, okay. And went to a house or something and kaboom. Someone knocked him over the head, took his money. Wow. Put his body in the trunk of a car. And That's and, insane. And so the homicide investigators come into the restaurant. Oh, during this meeting yeah. and say, okay, we, uh, this is homicide with Daytona Beach Police Department. Uh, we need to ask you a few questions. My friends are saying, homicide, what right. is going on? And they're saying, uh, Peter Wong was found murdered. And everything just drops because this is serious yeah. stuff. And then they said, is there anyone ever that you can uh, remember talk about hurting or maiming or doing any harm to Peter Wong? And everyone was like, mm. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes, the hands go up timidly, you know, and it's like, tell me about it. You go, well, we kind of all just kind of, but we were joking, we were joking. Yeah. And going, well, this is not a joke. This really happened, and the man's dead. Is there anybody who was joking, as you put it, and who is not here now? And I was like, well, the Cranston brothers? Oh, yeah, and they're writing, and then the Cranston brothers. When did they leave? Uh, oh, two weeks ago? Oh, no. Two weeks ago, that's when we determined that you know, the man was killed. Uh, where can we find them? They go, well, they left town. They, oh, they left town, oh, did they? Yeah. So they're taking out all this on information. On their motorcycles. Yes. Little did we know, they put out an APB on us. And to find us, we were somewhere in the Carolinas, I think, at that point. Yeah. And we didn't know any of this. So we're just tooling along. I can just imagine if someone yeah. really pulled us over and yeah. down on the ground with a guns blade. I, you know. And then before that came to happen, they put the pieces together and realized, oh, they've had some witnesses and some cameras at the right. at the dog track and they saw what was going on and made an arrest and so we were this close. You were that close. Oh my god. The fork in the road. I mean <laughs> Thank God that you know the security cameras and you know alibis were as strong back. I feel like now you can you really can't get away with anything because there's you know every corner has seven cameras on it. Isn't that like, a shame? You can't get away with anything no, you anymore. Can't. No, no, no. Not like when we were kids. <laughs> when I was that motorcycle trip though fascinates me because I was you know reading about it in your book and it's like this. It was first of all a two-year motorcycle trip. Yeah. Which I want to know, how do you even fill a two-year motorcycle trip? And what do you do while you're doing a motorcycle trip for two years with your brother? The, the impetus to leave California in 1976 was I had just had finished two years of college and I was uh, studying police science. Yes. And I realized at the end of two years that I did not want to be a policeman. And my brother was kind of on the same track and it's like, what do we do? And it's like, I don't, I don't know. Let's run away. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, and in a way, in at the time, it's like, well, we're kind of just leaving to uh, see what happens. But in a way, now in retrospect, it was allowing myself to get lost so that I can find something to be found, right. or to find something of meaning to me. And I, and I knew, had enough sense, even at 20, to realize I don't want to just launch into something that I'm, I'm not really in love with or passionate about. So I better not do that. Right. And I didn't know the alternative yet. So at least it was, let's, let's just travel. 
let's just get away. And, you know, we had these two motorcycles, and so we just left. That was it. We didn't really have an itinerary or a plan. Right. But I know it was during that, that trip that you just sort of made that decision to pursue acting. Yeah. I mean, were there... I know you were reading plays, yeah. you know, that you, you brought with you, but yeah. were there other moments of uh, revelation that sort of revealed, like, how you could pursue a career? I mean, could, I mean, let me back up a little bit, because I know that you grew up in the shadow of Hollywood. Your dad was part of that industry yeah. and, and um, wasn't super successful. I would maybe even say failed at, at a lot of attempts yeah. to, to become a successful person in the industry, both as a writer and an actor. So it seems to me like just, it would be very hard to find a desire to be, become a part of that industry with your dad having suffered so much in it. I think that's probably what contributed to leaving. Yeah. Is that I wasn't ready to well, I'll stay here and become an actor. Right. Oh, no, that didn't work out well. And I just wasn't, I, I, I just I wasn't enlightened. Yeah. So I had one book with me, and I would read it at night under my little lamp. And, um, oh, wow, <laughs> look at that. Thank you, Briars. Welcome. Your Pokeball. Thank you. So I'm reading Hedda Gabler and reading it and reading it mm -hmm. and uh, passing the time. And all of a sudden, I looked up, and it was... Uh, past dusk, I missed the transition from day to night. Because you were so enraptured. Yeah. I was so enraptured with the story and, and the, the journey that a good play can take you away on. And I was blown away by that. It was like, oh my God. And I went, okay, I'm really, I'm really leaning in on this. If I'm going to do this, I better learn how to become really good at it. And I, I developed a credo at that moment. Yes, right. And, and that's, what, that's when it was. That's when I made up my mind in 1977 that that's what I would do, come back to California and attempt to become an actor. Yeah. Your first big job was, was it Loving? Was that sort of your first? That was the job, I was 25 years old, I got a, I, I won the role on a soap opera that was just starting out, and I had had other jobs before, co-starring on a bunch of different shows, but I still had to supplement my income. Right. I had to move to New York, which was fantastic, and all of a sudden I went, you know what? I think I belong here. And from that point on, I've never done any other job except act for a living yeah. since 25 years old. It's remarkable. Right. And I'm 45 now. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, for a good 20 years. You're on quite a roll, aren't you? Uh -huh. Now for a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, Brian talks about the impact his dad's neglect had on the family, particularly his mother, and the time an ex-lover confronted him on the set of a soap opera. Okay, be right back. It sounds a little weird, but being the host of a show like Dinners on Me, where you eat out all the time, can be a little stressful on the body. I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling a little sluggish and I wanted to make sure I was getting the daily nutrients that I needed. Since drinking AG1 daily, I feel real difference with my energy levels and my ability to focus. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. Not only did I replace my multivitamin with AG1, but I love that every scoop also includes rhodiola and B vitamins for an energy boost. I just sort of added it to my morning routine. You know, you brush my teeth, I floss, I have my AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packets with your first purchase at drinkag1.com dinner. That's drinkag1.com slash dinner. Check it out. Don't you just love it when someone looks at you and says, hmm, something's different about you. What were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, 
Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake than ever. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and wider for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes, and you know you can trust them because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lohm, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying, something's different about you, but in the best possible way. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. I know that um, your parents divorced when you were young, like 11, right? And it yeah. was quite a bit of time before you reconnected with your dad. Uh -huh. So around this time that you're reconnecting with your father, you're also sort of making the decision to pursue this career that you know he also wanted to do. What Do you remember what his response was to um, you deciding to you know, try your hand in New York and... Yeah. Um, I think he was very uh, happy for me. Mm -hmm. He said to me once, which is such an interesting, and I'm, I'm still trying to decipher what it means, uh -huh. but at one moment of calm and, and retrospection, he said, I wasn't a good father, but I was a loving father. I don't know if you can really divorce the two. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out as a dad myself, and I'm sure you think that as a, as a dad yourself, how you do divorce the two. I'm not sure how yeah. I could look at my sons and say that and what that would mean. Yeah. How did you interpret that? I, I think he was trying to apologize for leaving the family. Mm -hmm. He left when I was 11, and so it was 11 years. Yeah between the last time I saw him, 11 years old, to the time I saw him again at 22 years old. Right. And... And what formative years oh, those are. Oh, man. God. You know, and I think that's why I was attracted to police work, because I think I was looking for a masculine role model to oh. take the place of yeah. my missing father, you know? I, I don't know, it could be that, probably is. And your mom had she remarried at that point? Oh, yeah. My mom was like Blanche Dubois. Uh, <laughs> oh my. No, I have a feeling that that might have trickled down to you a little bit. A little Blanche Dubois? A little Blanche Dubois. I feel like, I feel like you, had, you had quite a, you're a ladies man in your past. My mom still talks about when she met you at the Golden Globes oh, the night Golden, before yeah. party. She goes, you know that, Brian Cranston, I think he was flirting with me. I think he's just a very charming individual, mom. <laughs> it's fun, it's, it's yeah. fun to, yeah. to engage. Yeah. No, you were very lovely with my mom. Yes. Um, so your mom was dating. She was, there were men coming through, but you know. Men coming men, through. Men coming through. <laughs> well, it sounded like a gas station. No, no. Ding, ding. My mom was um, unfortunate. She was a very sprightly, engaging woman, pretty, um, happy in the first 10 years. But when my dad left, it broke her. It broke her down. She became an alcoholic. She detached from her kids. I have a younger sister and older brother. And um, became a person I didn't recognize. It's sad. It is sad. Yeah. I mean, when both your parents were kind of, in their own ways, removed from your life. Yeah. And when I think of them, that is the overwhelming feeling I have, is sadness. Yeah. Yeah. That it was a big missed opportunity. Yeah. Through lack of responsibility or accountability, through um, inability to overcome and to see the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. yeah. My mom spent more time uh, with, you know, the, in the flirtation of men uh, to make her feel better. I think she had such a, a wounded heart. I'm sure after being left by someone you care deeply about, yeah. that's got to affect you. Sure. And, that's, that, and I think that's what happened to her. And she became drinking buddies with all these people. And it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Man? 
Tell me, I mean, this is in your book and I find it fascinating, but the story of the, your girlfriend who ended up showing up on set yeah. during a taping of Loving. Well, to take it back a little bit, um, I forget what I called her in the book, but I changed the name yeah. of this person. I, I assumed you did. Yeah. Um, I was married before, very briefly. And a, a two-year marriage, it was like, but the woman who I married is a lovely human being. I, I couldn't say a bad word about her if I wanted to. But we weren't in love. You were young and yeah, you were we were, we were Yeah, and we did something rash, and it was like, oh, you want to, and I want to, oh, oh. So shortly after my marriage ended, I'm going on an audition, and I meet this woman, Ava, let's call her. <laughs> and uh, she is assertive and uh, in command, beautiful, and she, she goes, we should get together. Like, <laughs> okay. And uh, we had a very hot and heavy romance right off the bat. Huge mistake. And I, I see that there are several things about her lifestyle that I am not into at all, namely drugs. Mm -hmm. She enjoyed doing drugs. I don't do any drugs. And it, it's, it's not a, a knock on people who like casual social right. uh, imbibing, um, that's not what this was. Right. This was an addiction. And uh, I didn't know anything about it. Anyway, I, I broke up with her. Just around the time I broke up with her, I got this job in, in New York. Oh my God, here we go. Go to New York, here I am. And all of a sudden, like three, four months into it, I get this call. Hi, it's Ava. Oh, hello, how are you? Yeah, well, you said you wanted to be friends, so I'm just calling as a friend. Oh, yeah, okay. You want to get together as a friend? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't. Friends go to have lunch or dinner together. Okay. And we were drinking and we were eating, and she made this beautiful meal. And, and then it started turning. She started talking like, we're still together. Yeah. And I went, oh, oh, oh I've, made a, I've made a mistake. Yeah. Um... I'm so sorry. I'm really, really sorry, but I probably shouldn't have come over. And she goes, what are you doing? Are you, you dumping me again? Oh, Brian. <laughs> oh, oh my God. What's happening? What's happening? And, and I, I extracted myself from this situation. It was very ugly. And then two days later, I'm on the set of Loving. You know, it's, it's yeah. control. Yeah. There are guards yeah. you have to get yeah. through. And it's not things. easy to swim. You can't no. just walk on a television studio. And we're sitting there. I'm, I'm talking, waiting for the, the cameras to come over to our set. And some of my guests, I said, who's, who's that? And I said, who? And I turn and I look. And there's Ava, arms crossed, staring at me with daggers. Just maybe 20 feet away. And I went, <gasps> Terrifying. Oh, God. And and I go, what are you, what are you, what are you doing here? You thought, you thought that you can just walk out on me? Is that what you thought? You thought you can just walk out and leave me alone? Is that right? And I'm like, oh my god, this is like, <laughs> this is a soap opera. Yeah, I'm freaking out. It does. It devolved from there. The relationship. Well, went I'd say further down <laughs> from there to a point where I had this vision of killing her. I went to a different place. You know, they used to call it seeing red, and all you see is emotion and rage and fear and, and anxiety. And I was like, <gasps> and the moment that I snapped out of this, she was. In my mind, I had already killed her. Right. And I was so afraid of myself at that moment that I went, oh my God, what is happening to me? I'm so frightened by this woman, this petite woman, five foot two. I mean, just, I, I just didn't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. Didn't know what to do. 
I mean, you, you finally shook it, but yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I also find it interesting that you had that that experience, and then, you know, 20 years later, you know, you're, you're going to embody a character that is actually going to have to draw from some of that. Oh, that's, that's a good segue. Look you at know? you with your segues. Well, I don't even want to go there next. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'll get to Breaking Bad. Um, no, I'm actually interested in, like, hearing a little bit about you being fired from from loving and mm. like what that felt like. I can only mm. imagine that, you know, when you're starting off and you're in your 20s, it's like gotta be a gut punch. I think it's important. I think being fired and being dumped are two um, passages in people's lives that yeah. that gives you balance, actually. You know, oh, oh, maybe this happened because I wasn't listening. I wasn't as attentive. I wasn't present. I wasn't whatever. It gives you a pause and a chance to reflect. Right. And I think hopefully become a better person. Right. I was, uh, I, I was counting on leaving Loving after two years. My contract was up. They get called in the office. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, the guy who fired me is a guy named Joe Stewart, who was just a horrible human being. I hated this guy. <laughs> right, he was a hatch, hatchet. I like man. that we're not changing his name. No, his name is <laughs> Joe Stewart. And he was, uh, he enjoyed inflicting pain on people. He, what was he, his uh, title there? Was he? He was the, he was the producer. Okay. He was the main producer. Okay. And he was, uh, you know, he's probably dead by now. I don't know. But um, he just wasn't a, a very nice man. He would go up to women and say, you're getting fat. You need to lose weight, because no one wants to see a fat actress on a, a soap opera. I mean, just stuff like that you cringe. The yeah, it's like the cliches you hear about Hollywood. Anyway, so he calls me in. Have a seat. I sit down. I don't, I don't know what he's about to talk about. Maybe a, a, a remote shoot or something. You know. Um, we've decided uh, uh, it's in the best interest of the show to go in a different direction. We appreciate all your contributions, but this will be the last quarter that you'll be working on the show. He immediately stands up again. We just sat down. That's all he said. <laughs> just sat down. I'm settling in. We don't need your... And he stands up again. Oh. Oh. And I stood up. And he goes, thank you for the work you've done. And I, and I put out my hand to shake his hand. I shook his hand and said, thank you. <laughs> and then I left his office, walked to the elevator and went, what an idiot. I, I thanked, him, thanked him and I shook his hand and I'm like, what am I? I was just so stunned, right. you know? So, but when, you know, when you have something like that happen to you, it's for a reason. Yeah. Now for a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, Brian tells me about the royalties loophole he discovered on Malcolm in the Middle, which made him very popular with the crew. Okay, be right back. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? I remember the very first cookbook I ever bought. It was when I was living in New York City. I had a roommate at the time and we had a very tiny kitchen, but I decided I wanted to be a better home cook. So I bought this cookbook from like a secondhand store or something. And that cookbook led to a little bit of a hobby for me. I, I enjoyed cooking from, from home and, and making meals for myself and my roommate. When I had began a family. Uh, I began cooking for them and now I have two kids and I love cooking for them and I throw dinner parties and I'm actually now a author of my own cookbook. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of its available features include a dynamic sky panorama glass roof and front row massaging seats. Oh, that's very luxurious. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees. 
singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley. And today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. When I was 40 is when Malcolm in the Middle came along. Yeah. And that changed my life. Yeah. You know, it changed Absolutely. our lives. For sure. But then I, I, I find it fascinating that, uh, and I think this happens quite a lot in sitcoms, um, where you were in the threat of being fired after the pilot. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of there for me to, to carve into. So they were, you had four, four sentences yeah. in the pilot, and from that, they weren't sure if they wanted to keep you. Right. Because they didn't know what the character was. They didn't know what the character was, and they didn't know that I, I, maybe it was the actor who wasn't pulling it off. Right. And Linwood Boomer, to, to his credit and my great good fortune, said no. Yeah. No. They said, it's, it's not him. Trust me, it's not him. We don't know who the character is, right. so we'll find him, and he's he's the guy to do it. Right. And so he absolutely refused, and they backed off, and that's that's how I stayed. For seven years, was it? Seven years. Wow. Yeah. And I love the story of you um, joining ASCAP because yeah. you your character tends to whistle and sing a lot, and yeah. they you could actually earn royalties from these little still do. I love that. I still That is get... such a loophole that I feel like no one talks about in this business. It's so funny. Yeah, I got this call from um, from the Fox uh, head of uh, music clearances. Yeah. And saying, um, can I talk to you a second? Yeah. I said, this is what I do. And I said, but I, I, what are you talking about? You know, why are you talking to me? Are you a member of BMI or ASCAP? I said, no. I don't write music. Well, actually... The whistling and humming that you do as Hal on Malcolm in the Middle constitutes music. Yeah. That is actually written, composed by you, maybe on the fly. Uh, and as long as it's not part of a, a something else that right. actually has been produced and published, right. um, you might as well be the, the publisher and, and performer of this music. And it's like, so I have to write down every second of music. And humming, or whistling, yeah. is I'm it? not paying you for that. Yes, you are. <laughs> you are definitely paying this. That's going to cost you 17 cents. Um, and so incredible. So what I did is I told the crew about this, because I, I thought it was an incredible story, too. Yeah. And I said, well, guys, what, what I'm going to do is uh, every time I get a check, I'm just going to buy a, a bunch of food and a bunch of booze, and we'll have a big party on a Friday night after work. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. With your money from your royalties. With the money from the royalties. So then I'd have crew members coming up and say, hey, Brian, yeah. I said, I read this week's script. You know how's your, how you're underneath trying to fish the, uh, fix the garbage disposal yeah. in the sink? You know, I go, yeah. He goes, well, it seems like a perfect opportunity yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> to hum or whistle. Yeah. I go, you know, Stuart, I think you're right. How soon after Malcolm in the Middle did Breaking Bad come along? Right away. Yeah, I, I know you and Vince had worked together previously on X-Files, was it? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I did an in, uh, independent movie I wrote and directed years and years ago. And I had just been back into Los Angeles for four days starting to edit. And I get a call from my agent saying, uh, are you even, in, uh, you know, I know you're editing, but are you... Uh, interested in doing any acting for I said I'm broke and I was and I, we put all our money into this independent film and and I I go well, yeah I, I'm broke I need a job so yeah send me out and they said well there's this thing on uh, X-Files about a guy who does nasty things and I go oh it's perfect I had kind of this mustache <laughs> dropping down yeah. a Fu Manchu yeah. my hair was long and the mutton chops and yeah. and it's like oh okay I think this works I got the job it, that episode was written by Vince Gilligan it was a it was a beautiful uh, entry for me to get experience about what he was capable of right. beautiful episode 
And at the same time, he was keying into me going, well, you're doing all these despicable things and it's exactly as I wanted. I still wanted the audience to empathize with your, your plight despite the despicable things you were doing. Mm. That's the template for Walter White. Right. So I did this one episode of X-Files. A year goes by, I get Malcolm in the middle, seven years goes by, and all of a sudden, 2006, Malcolm ends, and they said, we're casting for this show called Breaking Bad with Vince Gilligan. You know him? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, he said he knew you from X-Files. I go, okay, you know, it's been eight, right. nine years. Yeah. And, so, and then I go, well, wait, wait I think I, I kind of remember. And I went in and talked to him and, and read this script, and it was beautiful and yeah. risky and just extraordinary. Yeah. And um, he was my champion to get that. Now, here's the, uh, another twist of fate. Not only was that lucky to have met him, mm -hmm. At the end of our seventh season, Fox tells us and tells the production studio, don't take down the sets for Malcolm in the Middle. We might pick it up for an eighth season. And we're all keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah. We're having a great time. We had no time. job at that point. Yeah. yeah, it's a great job. We're well into it. We're lubricated. We know what we're doing. Whoa, and whoa, 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 whoa. Now, hang on a second. <laughs> it's a well-oiled machine. Yes, yes, okay, I gotcha. Thanks for clarifying. So, there we go. And... Uh, <laughs> And so we're all hoping that we get that eighth year. Yeah. Uh, the end of pilot season comes up. They have a good year. They tell us we're not picking up Malcolm. Devastating. Oh, ouch. They told us to keep the sets up. Oh, my God. And they're not doing it. Uh. But had we done an eighth season of Malcolm in the Middle, there is no Breaking Bad for Brian Cranston. Right. You'd be sitting across from, uh, you know, from from Matthew Broderick. From, do you think from, about it? Some, well, you knew he was up for that. Yeah, he was a name that was on the list. He was list. being talked yeah. about, and and Steve Zahn. Yeah. And uh, and and others, many others. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was just the lucky cuss to be able to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, it's definitely a, a lucky sequence of events. Yeah, damn um, right it is. I mean, it's obviously incredibly well acted, incredibly well written, but it did sort of break the genre and, and put it back together in a very interesting way. Oh, yeah. um, were there, was it ever hard for you to find moments of empathy? Not, not so much because I, I kind of, I kind of jumped in and when it was along for the ride and, yeah. and didn't want, as, as you know, you know, it, I don't want to be objective when I'm working. Mm -hmm. I, 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 we need to stay subjective. We need yeah. to see the through our character's eyes. And yeah, we, we, we're, I'm reading things when I'm Brian reading the the next episode, and I go, oh, I know what this is. He's justifying his actions, yeah. and he's making sense of why he did something. And I can, I can drop into that. Yeah. We do that all the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and so. Uh, you 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 kind of put the blinders on your own personal life and sure. go, but this is the character, and it's important for me to be narcissistic in a way and self-serving yeah. as the character, and get what I want or how do I get it? Who's in my way? How do I? It's all very self-centered. Yeah. It's all about me, me, yeah. me, me, me. Yeah. You know. And people wonder why we're egocentric. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. It, it, the problem is if you take that home yeah, and yeah, go, yeah, me, yeah, me, yeah, me, yeah, me, 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 me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what was it like going back into those characters for Better Call Saul, however many years yeah. after that was? Was that a... Several years. We told uh, Vince and Peter Gould, the co-showrunners of Better Call Saul, look, Aaron and I are in. If, if you say you want us, we're there. Yeah. So... We I think they were shooting the third episode when Aaron and I very surreptitiously and under the, under the cloak of darkness, <laughs> we were flown into Albuquerque Airport, private jet, whisked us over to the corner where I took two steps on a tarmac and into a dark sedan. I was going to say, if you had stepped foot in the Albuquerque International Airport, it would, like you, it would have been, no. news would have been out. It would have been, it would have been over. So no one knew. We went... They, wow. they rented a, a two-story um, uh, Airbnb 
He had the top floor of apartment, I had the bottom floor, and there we stayed for four days. We were not allowed to leave. Are you serious? Yeah, we, were, we weren't allowed to leave. When we were called to the set, they pick us up, we come, have a jacket with a, a hood, and we get in the back of the car, and we, yeah, this is all, yeah, cloak and dagger. That's incredible. Did, did, I'm sure the actors knew, like Bob knew, Bob opened Yeah, Kirkland. Bob knew. Yeah, and actually the, the entire crew had to sign an NDA. Were there a lot of the same people that you had done Breaking Bad with? The whole crew. Oh my God, what was that like Almost to walk entire, onto that? It's, that set again. Well, as you know. Yeah. Unmodern Family was a family. Yeah. You shared moments with them. You you went through births and deaths yeah. and marriages and divorces and life. Yeah. In the nine years, 10 years? 11. 11. No, I said nine or 10. It's, <laughs> it's eight, eight or nine. 11 years. Yeah. yeah. That is huge. That's huge. And um, yeah, so I mean, these people are your extended family. Yeah. And for me to go back and with Aaron and to, to be with the same crew yeah. from Breaking Bad into Better Call Saul was just like so juicy, yeah. so much fun. Incredible, it was so exciting yeah. to see you both in those roles again too. Yeah, Very gratifying fun. for an audience, for a fan of the show to oh. see that happen. And I also know that you followed up with doing a, you're doing amazing things on stage right now. Um, and the LBJ role was obviously a huge undertaking. Um, I, I found it very gratifying that you had such a hard time <laughs> with that role because I just, I have put you up on a pedestal. I think you can kind of do anything. So hearing that it was a struggle for you after doing something that was also huge to, to then feel like, okay, I don't know if I can undertake this thing. Like this actually might be my, my breaking point just in terms of scope of the material yeah. was, um, it felt comforting to hear that. Well, that's why I did it. I want, that's the closing story in my book. Yes. And I wanted young actors and not so young actors. <laughs> to be 48. Yeah. yeah. Okay. To be able to read that and go, oh, so yeah. he got nervous. He got, you know, he, he had fear. Are you wanting to do more? Oh, yeah. Stage? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, about every three years, I think, is yeah. when I can do a run. Some are due soon. Yeah, I'm due. 2025. Now I had a meeting this morning on a play. Can't tell talk about it, but it's with another actor that I think will, will be great, and it's a great play of the time. Very metaphoric about what's happening in in our world today, yeah. politically and emotionally, societal. It's great. Wise, yeah. Can't wait to see you on stage again. Yeah. You're, and you? I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Come on, what, you win a Tony and that's it? No, it was huge. I've been nominated for these things before, but never won anything. So it was really lovely to be able to stand in front of the community that I admire so much and, and thank them for letting me be a part of that community for, you know, 25 years. But, you know, it's not like all of a sudden I was fielding calls. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's incredibly meaningful. Yeah, for sure. And and the, the as you mentioned before, you have to be able to appreciate it for what it is yes. without any expectation, expectation that's right. of anything outside 100%. of 100%. That's absolutely right. You know, I used to hear actors go, I did a play. I didn't get an agent out of it. Uh, not one casting director yeah. came. It's like, w w you did the play for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, that's right. You didn't do the play for you. Right. For you to have a chance to act. Right. That's why you do a play. Yeah. Do you think that you're sort of take it for a full circle, but... Do you think your dad was in it for the wrong reasons? Or do you I, think he I, was... I do think so. Yeah. I do think he was in the wrong, there for the wrong reasons. My mother used to say, I never heard my father say this, but my mother used to say, in, in, sometimes in an inebriated state and a sense of despair, she would say, your father told me I'm going to be a big star and I don't care who I have to step on to get it. You know, wow. kind of... And there's probably some hyperbole to that, but um, my dad wanted to be a big, yeah. big player. Yeah. And I, maybe because of that, I just wanted to, you know, take me out and yeah. let's use some jargon from that. I just wanted to hit some singles. Yeah. I wanted to hit some singles. Oh, there's a double. Okay, I'll yeah. take the double. Here we go. I'm making a living. Great. I can call myself an actor. Fantastic. Do I, do I want the Grand Slam home run? Wow. If that opportunity came up, that'd be amazing. Yeah. 
but it's not like it wasn't the get end. Get out of my way. Yeah. This is what I and I'm nothing if I don't get the, no. And it's it's not that. And I hope that uh, I have a career as half as successful as yours. Oh my God! Truly, you're, you're doing great. Oh. I I I'm, I just love how you always you always surprise. It seems your your fans, but also yourself with the with the roles that you choose, and that's. I think, you know, a, a great dream of an actor with longevity is to constantly be surprising yourself by your ability and what you can do and yeah. challenging yourself and being scared of things. That's the other thing. Yeah. Like, even just this podcast for me is a scary thing, and I, that's why I decided to do it. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine told me a, a, a motto of uh, the Alexander Technique, you know, the Alexander yeah. Technique, and uh, it's it struck me deeply, and and I use it for my own credo basically now. And it's like, it goes, if you only do what you know, you will never do what you don't know. Mm. That's like, wow. Wow. Yeah. If I just do what's comfortable to me, oh, I'm good at this. So I'll just stay yeah. here. Yeah. Whatever else is out yeah. there will never be explored. And I'd rather take the chance of exploring things and failing, really would, yeah. than, to, uh, than to play it safe. I'm so glad you shared that because I think that's that, that motto of getting out of your comfort zone, I think it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. So thank you, Sage Thanks, Cranston. <laughs> <laughs> and thank Thanks. you for doing yes. this. Thank you, man. Of course. Yeah, that's fun. Next week on Dinners on Me, you know her from her role as Tasty on Orange is the New Black and in her Tony and Oscar-nominated performance as Sophia in the Broadway and film version of The Color Purple, it's Danielle Brooks. We'll get into what it was like for her to inherit a role from Oprah Winfrey herself and also what it was like for her to lose her anonymity seemingly overnight with the success of Orange is the New Black. And if you don't want to wait until next week to listen, you can download that episode right now by subscribing to Dinners on Me Plus. As a subscriber, not only do you get access to new episodes one week early, you'll also be able to listen completely ad-free. Just click Try Free at the top of the Dinners on Me show page on Apple Podcasts to start your free trial today. Dinners on Me is a production of Sony Music Entertainment and A Kid Named Beckett Productions. It's hosted by me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. It's executive produced by me and Jonathan Hirsch. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Sam Baer engineered this episode. Hans Dale Shee composed our theme music. Our head of production is Sammy Allison. Special thanks to Tamika Balance Kolasny and Justin Makita. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Join me next week. <laughs>